Okay, so, uh, uh, you know, I was just thinking, I was telling Chuck, um, you know, I had one class left to talk about hidden heroes of the Bible, and, and, uh, and uh, we, we've covered a lot that yeah, I've been really, it's, it's been fun, it's been a great journey uh, for me, but this is the one that I was like, man, if there's one that you just got to hit, it's Nebuchadnezzar. And, and I really think it's perfect because he is the Saul of the Old Testament, but he's more of a Saul than a Saul. Um, uh, like Saul in the New Testament, he becomes a hero because he's this horrible, wicked, terrible man that is transformed radically and suddenly into becoming a credible warrior for God. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar is one of the wicked, the most wicked people in the Bible. I mean, this is Nebuchadnezzar. This is even outside of the Bible. We know quite a bit about this man from history. This guy's crazy, okay? This is the man that's responsible for, um, have y'all heard of the, um, the Hanging Gardens of uh, Babylon? It was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. Uh, according to history, whatever there is to that, this is the man responsible for building it. This guy was somebody, okay? A pretty incredible king. So I'm going to get out, I'm going to start out talking about Nebuchadnezzar by talking about Babylonian history. And this is super, super important to what this, this message is going to be. So I'm going to talk about their religion a little bit. This, uh, this image you have in front of you, this is the chief god of Babylon on the right. That's Marduk. Okay? You've probably heard him by the name Bel, or Baal. The reason they would call him Bel is because that means Lord. His name was considered too holy to pronounce. You wouldn't say Marduk, you would call him Baal instead. But that's Marduk. On your left, does anybody know this story? You know who that is on the left? That's Tiamat. Okay, so in Babylonian history, Marduk was at war with Tiamat. Marduk is a man, Tiamat's a woman. Okay, it's a bad, there's so much like hidden messages in this story. But Marduk and Tiamat are going at it. Marduk defeats Tiamat, destroys her, kills her, slays her body, and creates the world out of the body of the slain dragon Tiamat. That's the history of Babylon and how the world was created. Really crazy, okay? But Marduk is somebody, all right? They have a son, or Marduk has a son. His name is Nebo. Now, Nebo is... um, I guess it was about 3500 B.C. Um, they came out with cuneiform. Cuneiform is the oldest form of writing um, that we know about. And Nebo gave them, according to their tradition, gave them writing. And he was the god who was the scribe. So whatever he wrote down, I know it seems like a lame god. All the other gods have swords and things like this. Um, Nebo is the god of writing, but it's bigger than that. Because when he writes something, it is. So he was like, he was like, um, uh, their version of the word became flesh kind of a thing. If he wrote something, it was. And so he wrote things into existence. That's why Nebo is so important. Um, super important image, uh, to what's about to happen. So this is what went down, um, once a year in Babylon. And, and I want you to know this history because, well, it's cool and you gotta know this. Um, uh, but Nebuchadnezzar, was named after Nebo. This is not just the god of the people. This is the god that he received his name. Nebuchadnezzar means um, Nebo protects the crown. I am the king and Nebo protects me. He is my god. That's what his name means. So once a year though, um, Nebo's temple was just south of Babylon. Marduk's temple was in Babylon. And once a year at this this festival... Uh, called the Akitu Festival, 
they would march the statue of Nebo to Babylon. And the statue of Nebo would meet the statue of Marduk, and the high priest of Marduk and Nebo would come out. And the king of Babylon, and this is true of all the kings of Babylon, get this. The king of Babylon, I want to look at my bullet list here to make sure I don't miss something because this is so cool. This is called the humbling of the king. Happened every year in Babylon. On the fourth day of the festival of Akitu, the king was to face trial in front of all the people every single year. Before the priest of Marduk and and Nebo. Uh, The high priest greeted the king and then he stripped him of his crown and stripped him of his robe in front of the people every single year. Then he would drag the king by his ear to his knees before the statues of Marduk and Nebo. And then, and then the king was required to pray and beg for forgiveness and to promise that he had not been neglectful of his duties. The king would then, in front of the nation, make a promise of all the things he was going to do for the nation and the things that were going to happen before his gods and before the people. He would make these promises of what he was going to do. A list of promises and assurances. Then the chief priest was to strike him on the cheek so hard that the blow would be decisive and it would bring tears to the king's eyes. And the high priest had to hit the king so hard in front of the people that he was crying. And if he didn't cry, then the gods were not blessing him in his reign. Is this not the coolest thing ever? We need this in a minute. Okay, okay. <laughs> um, this, this is what the king would face. This humbling. He would come and so this great arrogant king, because there's no king arrogant than, more arrogant than Nebuchadnezzar, would have to do this every year and humble himself before the gods. But the gods meant everything to him. I'm going to give you a little bit of history about, uh, about who this was. His name, Nebuchadnezzar, may, means may Nebo protect the crown. Um, we have a lot of information about these gods. I mean, well, these gods and these kings from the time period. Um, this brick that you see at the top of the screen, uh, oops, right here, um, archaeologists suggest that 14 million of these bricks were made. 14 million, how about this, each one of them inscribed. Every single brick inscribed. 14 million. They have found countless bricks like this one with these inscriptions. The inscription says, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, eldest son of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. Every brick inscribed with the king's name. And archaeologists saying like 14 million of these things. The tablet below, we're going to get to that later you know, in this talk, and I won't stay in history forever. But it says this, he, Nebuchadnezzar, encamped against the city of Judah, Jerusalem. And on the second day of Adar, he seized the city and seized the king. He appointed a king of his own pleasure over it, the city. He took tribute and conveyed it to Babylon. What you're going to find out through this study is so much of what we found in archaeology actually agrees perfectly with the Bible. There's some places where it's a little different, but it's very, very amazing how much of this lines up with um, the book of Daniel. Um, this is, this is, uh, these are images of the god Nebo. And what you see in his hand there is the most ancient form of a pen. 
So all it was was a big triangle, and you would use it to engrave and clay and stuff like that. They would use reeds sometimes for this language of cuneiform. Um, he says this in Daniel chapter 4, verse 30. Is this not Babylon that I have built? So this is the king of Babylon that was responsible for really bringing Babylon into being an empire. Creating the hanging gardens. There's an image of what they might have looked like of Babylon because his wife was from Iran and parts of Iran where there were waterfalls and mountains and he wanted her to have that. And so he constructed mountains and waterfalls in the middle of the desert for his wife. The man had ambition, right? This is Nebuchadnezzar. It says this um, um, in, in, in one of the uh, tablets that was discovered. I built a strong wall that cannot be shaken with whatever that is, bitumen and baked bricks. I laid its foundation on the breasts of the netherworld, and I built its top as high as a mountain. The fortifications of Isagila, that's another name for Babylon, and, well, or a region close to Babylon, and I, in Babylon, I strengthened and established the name of my reign forever. This is a man that really wants to obviously make a name for himself, be a god, you know, among men. This is what God said about, about Nebuchadnezzar. Before we get into the book of Daniel and what's happening here, this is what God had said about him in Jeremiah. Therefore, the Lord Almighty says this, because you have not listened to my words, I will summon all the peoples of the north and my servant Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. Again, in, in chapter 27, now I will hand all your countries over to my servant Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. I will make even the wild animals subject to him. All right, so what strikes you in those two verses? What's the, what it, what, why did I put those verses up there? Okay, what strikes you? My servant, right? God says, this is my servant. In Isaiah 45, he does the same thing with Cyrus. What you got, Chuck? Yeah, I, I, I thought this interesting question was called Moses, my servant. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It's, it's, it's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it, it just kind of really takes, takes all the fire right out of Moses, right? You know, wait, you just called Nebuchadnezzar your servant, too. And this is, this is Nebuchadnezzar, you know, this horrible. And to talk about what he did, when they came and took Babylon, and the book of Jeremiah is a lot about this, in 605 and 597, 586, and on these dates, when they came and raided Babylon, man, they took them by hooks in their noses across the desert. They, they, they left women and children to die in the dust. It was a sick, sick thing. And once they took the people in, they changed their names Remember some of this? Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael. We grew up with those guys by what names? Man, we grew up by Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. What's crazy is, why did he change their names? Y'all remember this? Yeah, to honor their gods. So this is, get this, okay. Daniel's name means God is my judge. His name was changed to Belteshazzar. The keeper of the treasure of Baal, which was Marduk, right? Hananiah, his name means Jehovah is gracious. His name is changed to under the command of Aku. That's the moon god, Shadrach. Mishael, who is what God is, is changed to Meshach, who is what Shak is. Uh, Shak is the Babylonian uh, goddess. And Azariah, Jehovah is my helper is a change to Abednego, the servant of Negu, the fire god. Um, and you're going to see reference to this in the opening chapters of, of Daniel. 
God rescues Hananiah, Azariah, Mishael, Daniel from the fire, right? The fire God means nothing here. Later on in chapter 6, what's going to happen is, when you remember many, many Tekelu person with the handwriting on the wall, I am the God that is the author of the pen, not Nebo. I'm the God that does this. And you're going to see reference to this, just like in the Exodus, each of the ten plagues was targeting a specific God. I am the Lord of Lords. I am God. You're going to see the same thing in Daniel when you're looking for it. I'm targeting some of your gods too. I alone am God. Um, All right, so I'll keep going. So now we're going to get into the book. I'm going to slow my speech down a little bit. We're going to kind of get into the word. Um. I'm going to talk a little bit about who this guy was. I want you to appreciate how evil he was before we get to chapter 4. And that's, yeah, exactly. I want you to appreciate how evil the man is before we get to chapter 4, because that's where we're going to land here in a second. He destroys Jerusalem. He enslaves the Jews. He brings the treasures of the temple. I mean, we're talking about the lampstands, everything. In chapter 5, it's going to be the drinking vessels are important. But the treasures of the temple, he's going to bring into his own house. He's going to bring into his own temple and the temple of his God. He's going to change their names, their diet, and their culture. Now, what you see happening is it's so crazy in the opening chapters of Daniel. And this is why it's such an incredible book. Is you're seeing a deliberate attempt to change the culture of a people. Instead of all the empires that had gone on before where I'm going to go and just raise your city to the ground and I'm going to wreck you and I'm going to kill everybody you love. No, I'm going to take you. I'm going to change your name, your language, your diet, and your culture. I'm going to assimilate you. I'm going to make you one of us. Because they considered themselves, they're like the Greeks later, they considered themselves under the rule of Nabu. We are the educated culture. Nabu is the god of education. And so we're going to take Daniel and his friends, we're going to take these, these slaves, and we're going to educate them and make them like us, make them think like us. Can you imagine somebody changing your name and making it a name that dishonors God? If I enslaved Gary, you think about some of the people in this room and the faith they have in God. If I enslaved Gary, I love this. If I enslaved him... And said, I'm going to make you a name and give you a name that's blasphemous, that would be sick, that would have cuss words in it, that would honor a different God. I I don't know how that worked. I don't know how the people said, okay. You know, because I think a lot of us said, no, take my life, man. You're not going to give me a name that dishonors my God. Please just kill me. I'm not going to let that happen. Somehow, that's exactly what's going down. And this king is responsible for it. Um. All right, so we'll go on. This is Daniel chapter 2 is the dream of the statue. This is where Daniel enters the scene. And um, he says, uh, "This again, I want you to appreciate how evil this man is. In chapter 2, verse 5, he says this, The king replied to the astrologers, This is what I firmly decided. If you do not tell me what my dream was and interpret it, I'll have to cut you into pieces in your houses and turn them into piles of rubble. And he starts out by saying, interpret the dream. And then he says, no, that's too easy. If you don't tell me what the dream was too, I'm just going to slaughter you all. I'm going to kill your families. That was as natural as breathing for this man. Okay? He makes Saul in the New Testament look like nothing for how evil he is. Again, in verse 47, though, Daniel tells him this dream. And he says, you, O king, are a head of gold. 
Your kingdom is this head of gold, Babylon. After you will come another kingdom, the Medes and the Persians, Greece, Rome. He's going to go through this, this history of the world, but he's going to begin with you. You're a head of gold. You're somebody. And once he interprets the dream, the king, it says in verse 29, he says this, Therefore I, de- I decree, no, I'm sorry, uh, verse 47, Surely your God is the God of gods and the Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries. For you were able to reveal this mystery. Then the king placed Daniel in a high position and lavished many gifts on him. He made him ruler over the entire province of Babylon and placed him in charge of all of its wise men. Um, It's a totally different and beautiful thing to get into the story of Daniel and exactly how high his position was and who he was. But an incredible study, I hate to do this side note, but an incredible study to do sometime is look at the life of Daniel and look at the life of Joseph side by side. What happens in Egypt and what happens in Babylon. The dreams, the positions, everything. It's crazy to watch the parallel that's happening between those two. Anyway, in chapter 3, this is first, hey, you're the head of gold. Now we have a different statue. A massive statue of gold is set up in front of all the people, and it was 90 feet high and 9 feet wide. The king says, whoever does not fall down and worship will immediately be thrown into a blazing furnace. In verse 26, Nebuchadnezzar approached the opening of the blazing furnace and shouted, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out. And you see this king's heart starting to look at God and honoring him as Most High God. And then he falls back and he does it again and he falls back. But every time something like this happens, he starts to acknowledge him. In verse 29, he says this of chapter 3. Therefore, I decree that the people of any nation or language who say anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be cut into pieces and their houses be turned into piles of rubble. For no other God can save this way. Man, you see, he's halfway there. I'm honoring you, but I'm still going to cut people into pieces while I'm honoring you. I'm, I'm doing my best, you know. But he's, he's, he's getting there, right? But he's still, it's just like his nature. His nature is this bloody nature. And I, I, I know that there's videos that you should never watch today. But occasionally you'll catch a glimpse of it of the news of what happens in the Middle East when you capture a group of people and the beheadings that still take place as natural as can be. As natural as can be, that's what's going to happen. In these times, man, it was like breathing for this guy. He didn't know the difference. He didn't respect life. He respected him. So then in chapter 3... I'm sorry, chapter 4. No, sorry, chapter 3. Sorry, chapter, I have no idea where I am. Um, I am in chapter 4. Okay, here we go. In chapter 4, we have the tree, and this is going to be the last one. And I want to just kind of read through some of this chapter together because this is crazy. The reason I want you to get excited about what we're about to read is because you're actually stepping outside of the book of Daniel in chapter 4. You're reading the writing of King Nebuchadnezzar. This is Nebuchadnezzar writing this. All right, check this out. King Nebuchadnezzar, and by the way, all the tablets that have been found from this guy, they start the same way. And so archaeology agrees that this was probably written by Nebuchadnezzar. They all start with the very same intro. It says this, To the peoples, nations, and men of every language who live in all the world, may you prosper greatly. 
It's my pleasure to tell you about the miraculous signs and wonders that the Most High God has performed for me. How great are his signs. How mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an eternal kingdom. His dominion endures from generation to generation. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at home in my palace, contented and prosperous. Now, Nebuchadnezzar, the most wicked man, one of the most wicked men in the entire Old Testament, which is saying a lot, is about to share his, his um, Saul converting to Paul story. This is his conversion that you're about to read in his words. I had a dream that made me afraid. I was lying in my bed. The images and visions that passed through my mind terrified me. So I commanded that all the wise men of Babylon be brought before me to interpret the dream for me. When the magicians, enchanters, astrologers, and diviners came, I told them the dream, but they could not interpret it for me. Finally, Daniel came into my presence, and I told him the dream. He's called Belshazzar, Belteshazzar, after the name of my God. And the spirit of the holy gods is in him. It's crazy because he says the same thing on a tablet that's been found. That tablet with that same quote has been found from this king. I said, Belteshazzar, chief of the magicians, I know that the spirit of the holy gods is in you. And no mystery is too difficult for you. Here's my dream. Interpret it for me. These are the visions I saw while laying in my bed. I looked, and there before me stood a tree in the middle of the land. Its height was enormous. The tree grew large and strong, and its top touched the sky. It was visible to the ends of the earth. Its leaves were beautiful, its fruit abundant, and on it was food for all. Under it, the beasts of the field found shelter, and the birds of the air lived in its branches. From it, every creature was fed. In the visions I saw while lying on my bed, I looked, and there before me was a messenger, a holy one, coming down from heaven. He called in a loud voice, cut down the tree, trim off its branches, strip off its leaves, and scatter its fruit. Let the animals flee from under it and the birds from its branches. But let the stump and its roots, bound with iron and bronze, remain in the ground and the grass of the field. Let him be drenched with the dew of heaven. And let him live with the animals among the plants of the earth. Let his mind be changed from that of a man and let him be given the mind of an animal until seven times pass by for him. The decision is announced by, okay, by the time, by the way, you see this word times in the book of Daniel. It's, it's as strange as it appears. It is difficult to interpret. Most interpreters look at times and say it means years. Others say it means seasons. Then it gets really complex, and in Babylon, they only considered there to be two seasons. It gets really weird. So how long this was, not exactly sure. We're going to see different things. But anyway, say it's seven years, say it's whatever, but till seven times passed by for him. The decision is announced by messengers. The holy ones declare the verdict so that the living may know that the Most High is sovereign over the kingdoms of men and gives them to anyone he wishes and sets over them the lowliest of men. This is the dream that I, King Nebuchadnezzar, had. Now, Belteshazzar, tell me what it means. For none of the wise men of my kingdom can interpret it for me, but you can, because the spirit of the holy gods is in you. So the king said, oops, well, my printer messed up, so somebody needs to read verse 19 with me. It's going to be a great check to see if you're following with me. 
Yes. Was dismayed for a while in his thoughts alarmed him. The king answered and said, Belshazzar, sorry, let not the dream or the interpretation alarm you. Okay, I got it from here. Thank you. And you get extra credit for being there. Belteshazzar answered, my Lord, if only the dream applied to your enemies and its meaning to your adversaries. The tree you saw, which grew large and strong, with its top touching the sky, visible to the whole earth, with the beautiful leaves and abundant fruit, providing food for all, giving shelter to the beasts of the field, and having nesting places in its branches for the birds of the air. You, O king, are that tree. Now, he uses the same language he said with the head of gold earlier. You are that tree. You've become great and strong. Again, I'm going to kind of interject this here. Hey, this is what you were after, isn't it? You wanted something for yourself. You wanted to make a name for yourself. You wanted every brick you laid on every wall and every building to have your name on it so that you would be remembered, so that you would be somebody, right? You've become great and strong. Your greatness has grown until it reaches the sky and your dominion extends to distant parts of the earth. You, O king, saw a messenger, a holy one, coming down from heaven and saying, cut down the tree, destroy it. But leave the stump, bound with iron and bronze in the grass of the field. While its roots remain in the ground, let him be drenched with the dew of heaven. Let him live like the wild animals until seven times pass by for him. This is the interpretation, O king. And this is the degree the Most High has issued against um, my Lord the king. You will be driven away from people and will live with wild animals you will eat grass like cattle and be drenched with the dew of heaven. Seven times will pass by for you until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign. That's a huge word. Till you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over the kingdoms of men and gives them to anyone he wishes. The command to leave the stump of the tree with its roots means that your kingdom will be restored to you when you acknowledge that heaven rules. Therefore, O king, be pleased to accept my advice. Renounce your sins by doing what is right and your wickedness by being kind to the oppressed. And maybe uh, then your prosperity will continue. All this happened to King Nebuchadnezzar. Now, this is a huge historical problem. Historians have looked at this for a while and said, wait a second, you're going to try to throw a four to seven, however you're going to interpret times, year, time where Babylon didn't have a king, where he's out eating grass, you're going to really suggest this happened in the kingdom of Babylon. Twelve months later, as the king was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon, he said, Is not this the great Babylon I have built as the royal residence by my mighty power and for the glory of my majesty. You remember the last time in the Bible, you remember a king walking around on his roof, taking pride in what he'd done? And what happened next? The Bible loves to do this kind of a thing, walking around saying, look at me. And as soon as it happens, this is what goes down. Um, the words were still on his lips when a voice came from heaven. This is what is decreed for you, King Nebuchadnezzar. Your royal authority has been taken from you. You will be driven away from people and will live with wild animals. You will eat grass like cattle. Seven times will pass for you until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over the kingdoms of men 
and gives them to anyone he wishes. Immediately, what had been said about Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled. He was driven away from people and ate grass like cattle. His body was drenched with the dew of heaven until his hair grew like the feathers of an eagle and his nails like the claws of a bird. Um, This is one artist's. Let me go to the next slide, Steve. That's one artist's rendering of, of what happened. Don't try to get anything creepy out of this, like real feathers or anything like that. They're just metaphors to talk about you got dreads, you know, uh, pretty nasty. Uh, and at the end of the time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes towards heaven and my sanity was restored. Man. And when you hear that, my sanity was restored. Don't hear... Oh, because I went crazy and I'm eating grass over here and now I'm back to normal. He was never sane. He didn't know what it was to be sane a day in his life. Now my sanity has been restored. I see myself as I truly am. And I see God as he truly is. Then I praised the Most High. I honored and glorified him who lives forever. His dominion is an eternal dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the people of the earth are regarded as nothing. He does as he pleases with the powers of heaven and the peoples of the earth. No one can hold back his hand or say to him, what have you done? At the same time that my sanity was restored, my honor and splendor were returned to me for the glory of my kingdom. My advisors and nobles sought me out and I was restored to my throne and became even greater than before. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and exalt and glorify the King of Heaven, because everything he does is right, and all his ways are just. And those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. Um, that is the last we hear about Nebuchadnezzar's life. Picks up in the next chapter, we're in a different king. We're going to be talking about his son who did not learn the same lessons that his dad did. But you're looking at this story of Nebuchadnezzar, and most of us remember this evil king that burned people in furnaces and chopped people in pieces and was this awful, sick, prideful man. But his life concluded, and get this, this is what archaeology has has kind of discovered about this. This is what's crazy. Um, (laughs) Here we go. This is what one tablet, this tablet was actually just discovered not too long ago. It says this, For four years my kingdom gave me no joy. During this time, and this was written by Nebuchadnezzar, not one building of any importance did I issue to be built. And in Babylon itself, no building was erected to pay tribute to my name or to give me glory. I did not sing praises to Merodach, my God. Nor did I provide his sacrificial table with offerings, nor did I clean any of the waterways. Um, it's just a, it's an inscription, and there's one more inscription I need to read. It's, it's better than that one. But most of the inscriptions reflect that he went mad at the end of his life. He went crazy. Another one says this. Um, Nebuchadnezzar considered his life appeared no value to him anymore. And Babylon... And keep in mind, my reading is not this terrible. These are all ellipses because they've only been able to translate certain parts of the tablet, so it's going to be choppy. Uh, His life appeared of no value to him, and Babylonian speaks bad counsel of evil Merodach. That's his son. And he gives an entirely different order, uh, but his son doesn't obey his lips. Nobody respects him. 
He does not show love to son or daughter. Family or clan do not exist. His attention was not directed towards promoting the welfare of Babylon. He prays to the Lord of Lords. He raises his hand in supplication. He, he weeps bitterly to the, the God of gods. His prayers go forth to, and that's all we have. Um, that is from a tablet that's been found that even archaeology is reflecting that this king went mad at the end of his life, went crazy, and it says this, and all he could do is worship the God of gods. That's all he could do at the end of his life. History agrees with the Bible here, and that's crazy. So when I bring this out, and I'm like, okay, what message are you bringing? Because, I mean, it's a lot of fun history, and I do love history. This is the most arrogant man that could ever live, building buildings for himself. Everything is about him. Building sand castles, and that's what, that's what this is. And then finally he realizes this. God is able to humble those who need to be humbled. And it's so sad to me that this incredible hero, at least in my experience, this incredible hero of the Old Testament is a hero because he was able to give up everything and get sick of indulgence to the point that he'd recognize the only thing of any value in this life is God. That's it. And so I I was reading and it just hit me. I was like, this is the Saul of the Old Testament. We don't have as much writing from him, but this is the Saul. This is the guy that just before an entire nation said, I'm giving my life to God and I'm going to turn this, I'm going to turn my journey around. So any reflection or comments on on that? I've been talking (laughs) into the ground, but yeah. Right, why did he choose? I don't know, any comments? Right, the question, the question is, okay, there's a lot of evil kings in the Old Testament. You know, this, this guy's up towards the top, but there's quite a few. What is it so, so special about Nebuchadnezzar that God somehow reached into this man's life and showed him the grace to humble him the way he did, yeah? Right. Um, and he sees kings as no different than, than beggars in terms of being worthy of his grace. Yeah. And uh, it's, it's interesting just to see that, uh, you know, I guess maybe a reason would be from a historical standpoint, in order to be able to, uh, uh, to have something that people can look back at and mm-hmm. say, That's one message, and I like that. To be reminded that this evil, horrible man that just destroyed everything you've ever known, your families, your cities, changed your name, did all of this, and God steps in and says, I love that man. Wow. Kind of like Saul. Yeah, I'm, I'm, going, I'm going to make a, a message clear. He does it with Egypt. He does it with Babylon. Whenever people exalt their gods, God, throughout the Bible, and it's another amazing st- study, 
to show how he steps in. Elijah is a good example of this. The people had turned and they were worshiping um, the god of the god of fertility, um, and all of the people are worshiping the god of fertility. Elijah prays. Do you remember his prayer? He gets down and earnestly prays that it will stop raining because they're worshiping the god of fertility. So let them know. Go ahead and let them know. They're, the God they're worshiping isn't God. I'm the God. And I'm going to address whatever area in your life that you're lifting up as God instead of me. I'm going to step in and let you know I'm God of that, right? Yeah. Wow. Right. And perhaps that was just another reminder. You know, Nebuchadnezzar, in those verses, it says that he was God's servant. I think it was talking about God was, I mean, that was, he was a servant of judgment upon. Absolutely, yeah. Absolutely. I mean, isn't it? A, it's an amazing miracle that we take for granted because we just see the history. But the entire Jewish nation, God takes and puts in captivity. Should have been wiped out entirely. He takes them there and he brings them right back out. And he just does this and he has this ability to, I'll take, I love what Angela said. I'm going to take care of you no matter where you are. It doesn't make a difference. I will preserve you. He did it in Egypt. He did it in Babylon. He did it in Assyria. Yeah, David. Right. I mean, yeah, he, he did it to you, but I wonder if there were other outcomes he could have chosen at the end of his period of sin. He could have been really angry at God. Exactly. He could have uh, killed Daniel. And to, mm-hmm. So, you know, I'm, I'm just trying to bring into the fact that I don't think, I think at the end of his period of sanity, he had a choice to make. Absolutely. Yep. And then I think Nebuchadnezzar shows after that time of punishment, finally commit all the way, like you said before. Mm-hmm. It's kind of like, yeah, God's pretty powerful, and yeah, you guys got something going on. So I'm just saying yeah. that I don't think he was, I don't think he was brainwashed into only having one answer after that time. Uh, right. It makes a lot of sense. I think it makes a whole lot of sense into in recognizing it's very difficult to take a story like this and to say, therefore, when disaster strikes your life, it's God's grace. That's what I have to be careful for, careful about in a class like this. But oftentimes it is. But 
it's what we do with it. You know, it is it is how we work. It is still our choice. Yeah, Kathy. Oh, absolutely. That's true. I love that, and that kind of brings me to the point that I wanted to close with. This is a man who once a year came before a God and humbled himself. Before the crowds, before the people, I'm going to get on my knees and I'm going to show my humility. Slap me in the face. Let me show the people that I'm humble. Superficial, before a superficial God. And now God, in a sense, is going to step in and say, this is really going to take place before a very real God. And even sometimes, just like with Paul would talk to the Greeks, when somebody's calling out to a God, statues of wood and bronze and all this other stuff, there's still this relationship, this weird relationship with a God they don't know. And that's a whole lot to your point. It's still happening. God is still God, and he is still his God. And God has led him, and he's brought him to this place. But now he's going to say, I want you to know me. And I guess the only application I can think for that is, How many times in my life has my relationship with God been through a religion? Through the way I worship, through what happens in church, through all these other things. But God is there, church is here, and this is what I know. My humility can be superficial. The things that I come before God with can be superficial. But God has encounters with man where it becomes very real and very genuine. This is me. I'm no longer just the God of your songs or the God of your church, you're having an encounter with me, and we're going to be honest with one another about what humility is, what that looks like. And sometimes it's through absolute disaster in life. And I love David's point. Thinking like this and recognizing, okay, the scary part is I have a decision to make at the end of this. The problem is if he had chosen the other way, this just wouldn't be a very cool story. 
aunt. And what I mean, I'm not saying that to be stupid, but what I'm, what I'm saying is this is a man that wanted his name to go down in history and everything he attempted to do for himself is dust today. And the one thing that he did to make a name for himself was to forget himself and to give his life to God, right? Amazing, right? Let's, let's pray. Uh, God, I just want to come before you and, and um, it's, it's just amazing to me that I'm praying to you. Uh, the same God that accomplished these incredible things in people's lives. And I just ask God that um, this would not just be a history to us, that we would understand this and realize if there's pride in our hearts, that we'd have an encounter with you, that you'd cause us to not want to honor anything in our lives but you, and that our honor would not be for ourselves. I praise you for somebody who's a hero simply because they chose to humble themselves a hero simply because they chose to repent at one moment and the impact that was made as a result. I love you for that. I ask your blessing over us, guys. In Christ's name, amen.